0: O oh God, our great God, Triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you for the opportunity to look again on the Holy One of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that He shares a human nature with us that is like a friend, a bosom brother who has undergone and can sympathize with us, the trials and tribulations of this life. He knows the sinfulness and misery of this world. Though not a sinner himself, he's endured all things on our behalf. And yet, O wondrous, mysterious God, that is but half, half of the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we are not able to comprehend your Godhood, let alone the nature of the Messiah who is God and man. Help us open our eyes, Holy Spirit, that perhaps even for a moment we can somehow dabble in these dark waters, these deep waters, and walk away blessed with a desire to praise you more fervently, more fully. We ask this in your blessed Son's name. Amen. Let me start by saying thank you. So many of you have been concerned, even this morning, with my health. I'm thankful for that. Just know, as Shane prayed, um, in my weakness, I am strong. Not because of anything in me, but because of Christ himself. This morning, we continue um, our Advent sermon series focused on the person of Christ. Christ. Last week we looked at the humanity of our Savior, and there was a special emphasis, I hope many of you shared, this was a blessing, that emphasis of His sympathy for our condition, His ability to intercede for us because He shares our humanity, and and the reality of His perfect sacrifice. This week we're going to look at Christ and His divinity, and um, part of the joy of me being ill is most of my thoughts will probably be very foggy this morning, which means Shane will have to come next week and clean up right behind me when he talks about uh, the necessity of our mediator being God and man together. So um, if I happen to trample on his sermon, it was a total mistake and can be blamed on my illness. And if I forget something, he'll just clean it up next week. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. But um, this morning, we're going to do something similar to what we did last week, which is very different than the way I normally preach Um, You know that I prefer to to go to a text and take it apart and work through it as we work through a book of the Bible together. This morning, we're going to follow the actual exact same format of last week's sermon, which is two points, and we're going to kind of be all over the scriptures. I hope to pull much from Malachi chapter 3, but um, we're going to look at two specific points this morning. The first is the Son of Man who is God, Uh, the Son of Man who is God, and I hope Um, There's a connection there from last week. where We're going to see the the Son of Man, the one who has this humanity with us. We're going to show that He is also God Himself. That our Savior is not just man, but man and God together. The second point is the God who has drawn near. And I hope even as um, Nick prayed this morning that you'll you'll see... um, how precious it is that our God didn't save us from far off, but comes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to be very close to us, to be near us, to redeem us. So the Son of Man who is God and the God who is drawn near. Let's look at the first point this morning. The Son of Man who is God. Um, It's most likely that... um, If you think about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you probably struggle more with the humanity of our Savior than with his deity. And I I hope last week was a challenge at least to think of all the ways in which our Savior shares our humanity without sin and all of its consequences. Keep wrestling with that. Don't lose the ground that you've gained over this last week, thinking of all the ways that your Savior can be sympathetic to you, who can pray for you well because of his humanity. Because as we look at the divinity this morning, the temptation will be to say, that was nice, put it in its box, and to put it away, when in the reality is that the Bible has a strong tension. Um, He is not just man. He is also God truly man, truly God, and that's... We like things that are nice and neat and round, and we, we want to make them mathematical. That's why even some people say he's 100% man and 100% God, and, and that's... Um, the idea is there, but the... It's illogical. You can't have 200% of anything, can you? This is a mystery, brothers and sisters. It's something that we have to struggle with, and it's only by faith that we'll ever apprehend it. So, um, let me encourage you to, to press on in this and, and trust that Shane's sermon next week will maybe even bring it more firmly along, but walk away with this morning realizing that we need a Savior who is all man, totally, truly, fully man, and totally, truly, firmly God. Um, whenever we see things like this in the Scriptures that, are, that seem contradictory or paradoxical, it's not truly a contradiction, just to be clear. We need scriptural proofs, and lots of them. We, just like we have the Trinity, and we have to make sure that we understand Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God, and yet not three gods. All that comes from a lot of stewing on Scripture and, and being convinced that there is one God from Scripture, and then there's also three persons who are one God. This morning, I hope that we can focus on Scripture so much to the point where we... We might not understand how it works out, but we are convinced that we have a Savior who is both God and man. Well, that starts with um, some simple proofs like I addressed last week. And I think the first um, set of proofs we could look at are divine names. How many of you um, may have a-, a favorited name from the Old Testament, perhaps for God, um, Some Jehovah Jireh or um, Yahweh or some other name. The names of God communicate things about God and they're reserved for him because he alone is God. Well, this morning, when we look at the scriptures, we see that um, those same names are applied to our Savior. For example, Son of God is used over 40 times in the Bible to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ just as we looked at last week and said, well, the Son of Mary points to His humanity. Surely, Son of God must also point to Christ's divinity. And this is not as the ancient heresy suggested, that God had come down and impregnated Mary in some way like a man did a woman. No, this is very unique. He is called the Son of God from the very beginning. This is a a family relation between the head of the Trinity, and His Son. It can only be given to God Himself, sharing the full essence and nature with the Father. In fact, um, throughout the Scripture, He's not just called Son of God, but the Father Himself addresses the Son, even in the Old Testament, and says, this is My Son, or His Son. Making it very clear that this One who we call the Lord Jesus cannot be limited only to a human nature. He must share a divine nature with the Father. Other important names or titles, Revelation 1, 5 through 8 and verse 17, very familiar to most Christians. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now there's speaking of the Lord Jesus here. And made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So it seems to be speaking of his humanity. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then look into what this man says. I am the Alpha and the Omega says the lord god who is and who was and who is to come the almighty fear not i am the first and the last and the living one i died and behold i am alive forevermore and i have the keys of death and hades he calls himself the beginning and the end the alpha and the omega what can come before the beginning of something nothing and what comes after the end Nothing. He is declaring himself to be the Eternal One by this name, Alpha and Omega, the title, the beginning, and the end. Only God can have these names. He's called the Holy One. Now that, that could be, um, you could say, that's, that's just um, him being set apart, set aside for something. Acts 3.14 But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. He's not just called the Holy One, but the Righteous One. What one is there righteous but God himself? He's called the author of life, who has life in himself, but God. And so this title, the Holy One, can only be attributed to God. And yet, it's given to our Lord Jesus Christ. He's called the Lord over a hundred times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 2.8 is a perfectly great example of this. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, we know Lord can't just mean sir here because the adjective or the genitive here, of glory. He's, he's the one who has all glory. We know from the Old Testament, God doesn't share his glory with anyone. This title here, Lord, is speaking specifically, directly of his divinity. Now, this verse is is helpful for another reason. I hope as you start to read your Bible, you'll be looking to find places where you see the humanity of Christ emphasized, the divinity of Christ emphasized, in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, you see something that the Bible often does. Listen to it again. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, listen to, the, to the, the, the else clause, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, can you crucify God? Well, I hope the answer is no. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He has no body, parts, or passions. You could not nail God to anything, let alone a tree. And you could not kill God. What's going on here? Well, the Bible, because um, the Lord Jesus Christ is one person with two natures, will sometimes give a name or a title for the divine nature when talking about the human nature. And so this is really helpful for us to see as we're reading the scriptures. There's going to be times that he is referred to as God, but the act is human. Don't be confused, brothers and sisters. The authors of the New Testament aren't confused. They're just so enraptured with the mystery of who Christ is. They can't help but speak of even human actions done in, a, in, a, in attributing to them to God, or sometimes even... Um, um, godly actions and calling out his humanity because he's one person. This is called the communication of idioms. It's the, the, the term is, is so important is that you know this. When you come across a sentence like this, just ask yourself, even though he's being called, called God here, is this something that the God nature can do? Or is this something that the human nature would have to do? And it'll help you keep it clear in your mind. Another title, one of the ones that's most precious to me, John 20, 28. The disciples are in the same room, perhaps, where um, they shared the Last Supper with the Lord Jesus. Thomas um, wasn't there the first time the Lord Jesus appears to him. And um, Jesus appears again a second time. And when he does, he offers Thomas his side in his hands. It says, touch them, see. And what does Thomas respond with? When the Lord Jesus Christ shows up, my Lord and my God. Clearly, Thomas sees Him as divine, and there's there's no way that you could mistake it. Again, um, Paul says the same thing in Titus two eleven through thirteen when he says, "Our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ." Matthew 1.23, the a text that you all might read even for. Christmas, when you're gathered this morning, what is, he, what is he called? Emmanuel, God with us. Romans 9, 5, listen to what Paul says, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. There's many times in the New Testament over and over and over again where The Father and the Son are called together or the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are named together. For example, Matthew 28, 19, when um, Jesus is giving his last commission to the church, he says, do what? Go baptize in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's very clear that he shares the divine name. Now, you would think that would be enough And yet, throughout the history of the church, many have been able to point to those passages and find ways to squirm around them, trying to declare things like, well, he's like God. He's just a little less than God. He shares part of the divinity, but he's not truly, fully God. Well, praise be that God didn't leave um, us without additional witnesses. Christ himself shares in the divine attributes. Even when he was in his humanity, I don't know if you understood this, but he was completely omnipotent. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Can Can you imagine that? That when he was in the cradle in his humanity, the divinity of Christ was still making sure there wasn't a single molecule stray in the universe. Who could do that but God? He was omnipresent. This will baffle your mind. Even though he had a physical body, and he was in one place, and you could point out Jesus if you were walking around in Galilee at this time. This is what the Scriptures say. Matthew 18.20 where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am amongst them. Huh? So even when Jesus is walking around the earth, if there were disciples in Galilee gathered together when Jesus was perhaps, I don't know, in Jerusalem, and they were gathered in his name, he was still with them? Well, absolutely he was. Matthew 28 20. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ is always with his people everywhere, even though he has a physical body now even in heaven. Ephesians 1, uh, 23. he fills all things. He's filling the earth because he's omnipresent. He shares the eternality of God. John one one. in the beginning was the word. Um, that's a great translation in English. It, it actually really is. Um, if you know a little bit of Greek, it's, it's even better because what's being said there is, is even before the very beginning he was. Who could be before time and space but God Himself? His, immu- his, immu- his immutability. Hebrews 13.8, one of the most blessed um, scriptures concerning our Savior. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That can't be said of his humanity, brothers and sisters. When he walked the earth, there were days he was more or less tired. There were days he was more and less hungry. There were days that were sad days and days that were joyous days. It's true of his divinity. We read Malachi this morning. Malachi 3, 6-7. You, you realize if you work through Malachi, well, Malachi 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Who is that? It's the same one Jeremiah speaks of. John the Baptist. And then what happens? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. God himself is going to come right after this messenger. And who is it? The Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same one who in verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O child, children of Jacob, are not consumed. He's not mutable. Jesus Christ, who is yesterday, today, and forever, is also the one who does not change. And that is so good for us, brothers and sisters. Because he doesn't change, his love never diminishes. And it never fails for us. He's also preexistent, something only God could be. Colossians 1.17. He is before all things. John 17.5, Philippians 2.6. There's so many places where it's just very clear that Jesus was before there was anything. So he shares the names. He shares the attributes. What about the works? Well, he's called creator. John 1, three. Nothing that has been created was created apart from him. He's called the sustainer. Hebrews one thing. If every oh, Hebrews, one thing. If if everything is upheld by the word of His power, He's sustaining you and I even now. Even though He sits at the right hand of God the Father in His human essence with a human body, guess what? Guess God, He's keeping you and I breathing. He's the one who's gathered us together to worship His name. He has the power to forgive sins. Now, this is that might seem strange, but think about it for a moment. When you sin against someone, who is the only one who's able to forgive? The one sinned against. If, if Benjamin hauls off and clocks Mia in the face, I can't step in and say, well, Mia, please forgive Benji. I'm not the sinner. I'm not the, I'm not the one who the debt needs to be owed up to. But, but you know who can? Listen to the, the gospel testimony. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their heart, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. They're right. Because every sin is against God. So who can ultimately forgive but God? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within himself, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Jesus, understanding what's in their heart, says, but that you may know the Son of Man. What what is that? It's a reference to humanity. The Pharisees look at him, and he's just declared forgiveness of sins. And rightly, if he was only a man, they say, you've blasphemed. But what Jesus is declaring is, you see only my humanity. Let me tell you something more. I am the one who can not only forgive sins, but I can even make a man Walk out of his bed. He raises the dead. You look in John six thirty nine through forty four. He's going to raise them up on the last day. Um, can any man raise another man from the dead? I mean, even look in the Old Testament when this happened, when a man dead fell on the bones of Elijah the prophet. It's God who made him alive. When 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 Elisha had to lay on the woman's dead son, he did it 3 times and what did he do? He cried out to God, "See, no man has the power in order to raise another man from the dead. God must do it." And so when Jesus comes and raises everyone on the last day, it's going to be because of his divinity. And not only that, here's the thing. Here's an odd thing. He's going to transform our bodies. I I mentioned this text last week because it's so blessed. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So true. This is his humanity, his glorified humanity. When we see him, we will be like him. But how is he going to do that? by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see, natures can't change on their own. You can't turn a chair into a a table. You, You can't turn a sinner into a saint. The only one who can do that is the one who created those things. God himself. And so, yes, we're going to be transformed just like into his glorified humanity but it's going to be his divinity who does that. He's going to judge. John 5, the Father has given all judgment over to the Son. Well, that seems, you know, kind of banal. Like, well, couldn't the humanity of, of Christ judge? Well, here's the thing is, think about it uh, in an earthly way. Um, if you're a boss at a job and you're going to go away for a week, who do you leave in charge the one you know who can do the same job that you can do, right? That's kind of an earthly way of thinking of it, but um, in order for there to be a just judge, the Father has to give it over to one who must be God himself, who knows all things, who can see all things, who can open up hearts and be able to look in them rightly and say, you deserve damnation or you deserve eternal life because you're in me. The humanity of Christ can't do that. God delegated to God. Malachi 3.5. Listen to what we hear about this one who's coming, who's the Lord. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the very one who is the one who's coming to them in the temple. It's Christ. He's judge because he's God. And he gives eternal life. John ten twenty eight, or how about anywhere in the book of John? This is like one of John's favorite things to talk about is eternal life. That you may know you have eternal life, and that in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? Well, I don't know if you thought about this, but you realize the humanity of Christ didn't have life in itself. The humanity of Christ is a creature; it needed life from God. It's the divinity of Christ that gives life, because he is an endless wellspring of life. How about Old Testament verses that are applied to God that come to Christ? My favorite is my favorite is, "Who did Jeremiah see in the temple? When there was thunder and clouds and lightning, and, and there he sees one seated on the throne. He falls on his face. May I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. Who do you think he saw? Well, the Gospel Don tells us very clearly. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that he saw. Christ was seated on the throne. The, the, the verse that is very clear that it's God is speaking of the Lord Jesus. Malachi 3.1. One of my favorite sermons that Shane did in the book of Mark. You... He went back and he talked about how in the Old Testament and Daniel and Ezekiel, you see the Spirit of God leave the temple and go on the Mount Olivet and then go to heaven. Not to return again until when Christ himself appears coming down from Mount Olivet and goes back into the temple and proclaims himself to be the Messiah. Well, here, the same thing. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Who is it? It's Christ, who doesn't just show up to the earthly temple, but is himself also the temple. Psalm 102. Twenty-four through seven, you find that in Hebrews one ten through two, Isaiah forty three through four, uh, make straight the way of the Lord. Who is it? That's John the Baptist from Mat- Matthew 3-3 and Luke one seventy-six, where the the Messiah, the, the 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 forerunner, John the Baptist, prepares the way of who? The Lord, and who is he speaking of? Christ. Isaiah sixty-one is fulfilled in John twelve. Isaiah eight is. Shows up in 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8. I mean, I could have gone and read them all, but here's the thing is is there's an unless witness over and over and over again where the New Testament looks back to the old and says, Here is your God. Plain and clear. What about this? You realize that Christ received divine worship? Malachi 3.3 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and then what will happen? And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. God himself appears and does a work in his people and then they worship him. We say that might be vague. Okay. Look at the account of the resurrection, either in Matthew 28 or Luke 24. What happens? Jesus appears to them, and he speaks. And what did the disciples all do? Bow down and worship. If he was not God, that would be blasphemy, brothers and sisters, and sin. But he doesn't dismiss them, does he? It's because he deserves it. Because He's God Almighty. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, I don't know if, you're, if you know this, but we are commanded to worship the Lord Jesus. Commanded, you say, yes. Because believers are told to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, that, that sounds really vague, but you know that's just another way of saying pray to Him. And who can receive prayer but God Himself? And we see that twice in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has a thorn in his flesh, and what does he do? It's very clear. You might, you might run over it, but he, he prays to the Lord Jesus that it might be taken away from him. Or how about in Acts 7, 59, when Stephen's being stoned, do you know what he does? He cries out to the Son of Man and commends his spirit to them. He prays to Jesus and says, here is my soul. I commend myself to you. Brothers and sisters, I hope you don't entrust your soul to anyone but God. that's what Stephen did. He entrusted himself to God. Philippians 2.10 Every knee shall bow and tongue shall confess. What? That he, the Lord Jesus, is Lord. He's God. All the world's going to bow down and worship him, whether they want to or not. Who deserves that? but God himself. The last evidence. This might be the one that's most sweet to some of you. It's mostly from the book of John, but you realize that Jesus all over takes the divine name, not the titles, the divine name to himself. What do I mean? When when God showed himself to Moses in the burning bush, he gave his name the name by which the covenant would be, the name by which every believer, everyone who who would come to belong to God could call him. What was it? I am. Seven times in the book of John, Jesus calls himself the I am. And the Jews don't mistake it. Before Abraham was, I am. And then what did they do? Try to stone him right? Because because even from Jesus' own lips, I don't care what anyone says. So many people will say, Jesus never said he was God. When he says, I am, he's saying, I am that I am. A declaration by our Savior himself that he is God. And so the scriptures are clear that the Lord Jesus one person is both God and man. And brothers and sisters, if you're struggling, it is impossible to grasp this. It is. It puts a tension in our mind that we can't easily resolve. And you know what? That's a blessing, because it's going to urge you to, to go deeper and deeper. It's a, it's a mystery that's actually calling you to press in more and more until that we completely exhaust all of our intellectual ability. And then you know what we have? a final proof of his divinity, that he can't be completely comprehended by you. You can't wrap your mind completely around him because if you could, then you would be greater than him. No, instead, his, his whole humanity and whole divinity is so great a mystery, it will blow the finite mind. What a good thing this is, that he is God and man. Point two. So we've seen, we've seen this, that that he is the God man. He's specifically God this morning. But he's also the God who has drawn near. Convinced that Christ is God, now we can see what benefit this is to us. Just like we looked last week, we became convinced that he was man, we could see the benefit. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Um, this is going to take a lot of thought, and um, I might say things that you don't get right away, and that's fine. Go back and read, ask about it later. But but here's the thing: is start with this. Much like the cross is the place where justice and mercy meet, the incarnation is the place where God and man meet. Humanity and God come together in harmony once more, and what we're going to see then, what we're going to see then. Is that the divine doesn't the divine nature doesn't come to like fill in holes where the human nature, where the human work of Christ was lacking. Right? We, we talked about this last week. Like Christ really was tempted. He didn't like reach into his divinity and go, aha, I'll escape. No, he, he really was tempted. And and the divine doesn't like come in and, and like secretly like whisk him along so that he doesn't feel the fullness of temptation. Jesus felt temptation far deeper and wider and broader than you and I ever will. His humanity was the fullness of humanity. And yet, the divine nature, and I'm sorry we're so limited by human language, it's almost like the divine nature amplifies or magnifies the human nature in such a way it can apply to more than just to him. And we're going to see how that works. And so, and so um, if this is confusing, know that these are deep waters. So, where the humanity of Christ seemed like so foreign to us last week, but really we saw was really relatable, here, the divinity of Christ usually seems to be a given to us. But it's really going to cloud our mind and cause us to have to struggle to understand. And so, if nothing else, if you get nothing from what I say the rest of the sermon, get this, that the reality is that the divine nature in Christ is just as much for you as the human nature is. The divine is just as much for you. It wasn't like God stood off from afar and said, Here, have a God-man. Here, have a perfect human nature. Deal with that, and that'll rescue you. No, no, no. He came intimately near as both God and man. So what are these benefits? Well, the first is this. The divine nature of Christ kept the human nature from sinking under the wrath of God and the power of death. The the divine nature of Christ kept the human nature from sinking under the wrath of God and the power of death. I think this is a perfect example to see how, and I'm not trying to rob Shane from next week's sermon, show how these two things work together, right? Um, Was Christ's humanity completely perfect? Yes. Yes hold that. What is the nature of sin though? The nature of one sin, one, is so vile and heinous that it deserves eternal wrath and punishment. It does. It does. Any sin, all sin is against God, but any sin against God, especially so. How? How? Let's use an example from nature first. When someone commits a crime, how does a judge determine how he will penalize that person? Let's just take one of the most awful crimes there is murder. If two different people, one murders a 60-year-old and another person marries a five, murders a five-year-old, who gets the harsher sentence? The one who marries, murders the five-year-old, right? And we say that that's just and right, because the five-year-old is, is at least in the eyes of the law, is more innocent. It's the one who's harmed that determines the degree to which one is punished. Well, here's here's the thing is, just like that is true, think about when we sin, we sin against a perfectly harmless, innocent one. God never deserves the sin that we give him. He is perfect in all ways. And so our sin is infinitely heinous because of the one it's against. And and if you want proof of that, the scriptures are very clear. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Those are all sins against God in the Ten Commandments. And you hear what's being said is, is, you violate God's nature at all, his character even in the smallest, cowardly is the English translation. You deserve infinite wrath and punishment. Now, think of this, brothers and sisters. If that's true, one sin deserves the fullness of hell, then the weight of the sin of one man would be enough to leave a soul under wrath and the grave forever. The sin of one man would be enough to keep him dead and in hell forever. But what did the Lord Jesus take on Himself? Christ took on the sins of the world. He took on the sins of everyone that ever was or would be in Him. A weight far greater than anyone could bear. Infinitely greater. And so, this is why the divinity is so important. It's not coming along and going, Oh, Christ's work as a human, wasn't perfect. Oh, it was. It was sinless. He was an absolutely spotless sacrifice. Divine nature doesn't come in and say, oh, he missed some obedience. Let me fill that in here. Or here's a failure of his human nature and you got to prop that up. No, what he does is he enlarges the human nature so that the Son is capable of swallowing sin and death. It's it gives the human nature the strength to be able to endure the full, foaming cup of wrath more than any human ever could on its own. Proof from the scriptures of this. Acts 2.24 God raised him up, loosening the pains of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not possible for him to be held by it? Was Christ human in every single way? Yes. Do men die? Yes. And where do they stay? Dead. Dead. And yet, though death had held every man before, there was something different. There must have been something different. What's the difference? Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Okay, here's his, his humanity. And was declared to be the son of God, his divinity, in power. What power? Power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What raised him from the dead? The power of God in himself. His divinity. So we have evidence. Perfect proof here. This is what the divine nature does. It's not improving on Christ's work. It's enlarging it. Allowing him to swallow death, not just for himself, but for you. For me. And to come back from the dead that there would be a resurrection for you and for me. Well, the second benefit, the divine nature gives the human nature, it's the human nature sacrifice, the ability to satisfy God's justice. So the divine nature allows the human nature to satisfy God's justice. Here's the deal. I don't know if you know it or not. Perhaps you're a visitor. There is a problem in the world there's a god in heaven who's perfectly holy and good and his standard is perfect holiness and goodness and if you look in your heart i think you'll find that you have not always honored the sabbath kept god's name holy never been angry never looked and had a lustful thought never lied Right? Just one of those things, one of those sins, like I've already said, is enough to send you to hell. There's a problem. There's a God in heaven, and you are a sinner on earth. And your eternal dam- destination is damnation if God is to judge you based on his law, based on his nature, based on his character. If there's going to be any hope for you and me, God must be made right with man. Somehow. But, but God can't just wink an eye... At sin and go, oh, well, I forgive it. I know Muslims ask this question all the time. Couldn't God just forgive and violate his own justice? Deny himself and his holiness? Absolutely not. He cannot just pardon and let evil go unpunished. No, there has to be a sacrifice, a sacrifice that's pleasing to him. And the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity is what? A perfect, pleasing sacrifice. Absolutely. The only way any of us will be made right with God is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you and I, if we're believers, we've gotten to this point. And we've confessed this. But have you ever wondered why the sacrifice of one man, even if he was perfect, could apply to all men? I mean, really, if you think about it, the testimony of the, of the whole Bible is that, at best, one man could give his life for another. That, that one life could cover one other life. But Mark 10.45, what did Jesus say? I have come to give my life as a ransom for many, to appease the right wrath of God. And so what you and I need is not just a perfect sacrifice. We need a perfect sacrifice that has effectiveness for all who believe. For every single one. This requires Christ's divinity. It needs his perfect sinless flesh and his humanity. But it needs its divinity. It needs the power of the divine. Listen, this is what the scriptures say. But now the righteousness of God, God's own righteousness. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation it just means a payment for God's wrath. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness that at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Would it be just for God to take the sacrifice of one man and count it to all? No. Because one man's perfection could never cancel out all of human sin. And yet, what do we see? It's not just the humanity appears. It's the righteousness of God himself. Christ is called the righteousness of God Himself. Jeremiah twenty-three, six, listen. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will called, be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Do you see the connection? Yes, Christ's human sacrifice was perfect his merits were absolute but his divine nature comes and enlargens it gives it a worth beyond just a simple human nature so that his righteousness could be all those who believes righteousness. The divine nature didn't take away from the perfect work of the human at all. No, it enlarges it so it can be the type of righteousness that appeases the righteous anger of God. I don't know if you understand this, brothers and sisters, but God's wrath was infinite. It had no end. And it wasn't just the Father's wrath that Christ ate on the cross. It was the Spirit's wrath. It was the Son's wrath because they're one God, These three persons, this one God, had an infinite wrath. And so the perfect sacrifice's scope has to be as large as the wrath it's swallowing. The divine had to be there. Not to suffer. That could only happen in the human nature. But to make the human nature large. Enlarge it. So they could take on all the wrath. And satisfy God's justice. The divine nature earns or bo- does it earn. <clears throat> Excuse me. The divine nature procures God's favor. Um, one of my favorite chapters in the entire New Testament, one that I, I have found very dear since my earliest days as a Christian, is John 17. If you, if you want to know what matters to Jesus, Look at what he talks about before he dies. Man, how he loves his church. Man, how he loves his disciples. But the one thing he makes really clear in John 17 is he wants something more than just the human love that Jesus had for his disciples to be with the church. No, what he promises that is going to happen is By his sacrifice, he's going to secure the love between the Father and the Son for his church. It's the divine love between the divine persons which comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that shock you? It should. Because most of us think like, oh, I get it. God loves himself... And then he kind of like little loves me. Like it kind of just overflows enough out of the Godhead that he, lo- no, 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 brothers and sisters. You're going to see in a second, because of his divine nature, it's the love the Father has as the divine one for the Son, even before he was created, that's ours. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which with He has blessed us in the Beloved. See what he's saying? The Father calls the Son the Beloved One, the One who has my love. And in Him, He has given us every spiritual blessing to the point that He calls us sons, sons, Just like he loves his son. We're adopted, brothers and sisters, by Christ's work. We're called sons by Christ's work. And we get the love that the Father has for the Son even before the world began as ours. Matthew 3.17, what happens? The heavens open up. The dove comes down on the Lord Jesus. And what does the Father speak to the Son? You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father speaks to the Son. Now that wasn't for the crowds all standing around, brothers and sisters. That was a declaration. Father to Son, I love you. Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Right? Now, that was a declaration for everyone else. But here's the idea. There is nothing beloved or lovely in you and I. And the work of one man could never possibly win over the attention of God for himself and for the whole sinful race. Yeah, maybe in his perfection, God would look down and go, yeah, you obey the law. Great. Wonderful. I love you. That's great. But he could never do it for all of us. No, no, no. Our union with Christ is our union with his humanity and his divinity. And in his divinity, he pours out the love of the Father in our hearts. Thank God that Christ was God and man. What are the benefits? The divine made it possible for Christ to purchase a people for himself. Well, here's just kind of math. Math. If the human nature by itself couldn't satisfy the justice for more than one person, if it couldn't give righteousness to more than one person, well, then the humanity could never buy a whole nation for God. It couldn't. One, one and one and one. Just one. That's all he would have ended up with. Just him and the humanly Jesus. But here's the thing is, God loves his son so much, He wants to give him a people. He he wants a whole nation to bow down and worship His Son and enjoy His Son just like the Father enjoys the Son. What glory, what grandeur He sees in His Son because they share the same essence. They share the same nature. they They share the same will and intellect. They're one God and the Father and the Son desire glory for each other. And so what has to happen? The father desires his son to be treated as a prophet and a priest and a king and so the divine nature must show up in the redeemer in order to secure these people to be those who receive him as prophet, priest, and king. Proof from the scriptures. Titus two eleven through 14 For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all men training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, there's proof of his divinity again. Who gave himself up for us. Why? He just called out his divinity. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Divinity had to be there. Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him. Before who? Before God. Of those who feared the name of the Lord and esteemed his name, what does he say? They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. It's right there. This one who shows up in the temple is going to spare a people. We heard Psalm 102 read this morning. This one who's suffering, he's stricken down, he's faint. He pours out his complaint before God. This is what he says. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he, God, looked down from his holy height, from heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gathered together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. This is the work of the Messiah. The Messiah. God himself freeing hearts, nations, peoples to all come together as one before him that he might be praised. What other benefits do we have? Because of the divine nature, the Christ has the right to send the Spirit. I told you last week that the thing that was helpful the Son wants to do is He wants to pray. And He wants the very same Spirit that empowered His humanity to be with us. And I don't change that statement at all. It's 100% true. The, the Son desires His people to have the Spirit. But in His humanity, you know what He cannot do? He can't send the Spirit. Nowhere in Scripture do we see men having the right to ever command God. Never. At all places and at all times, even in the garden before sin, man receives instruction and is under obligation to God. Never is God under obligation to man. Even when he enters into a covenant and there are promises in that covenant, God did that himself. Man didn't bind him up in it. So what ground does Jesus have to promise his spirit when he says in in John chapter, uh, in John, uh, the the high priestly prayer in 16 and 17, that he says he's going to send the spirit what power does he possess to provide for him John 16:7 this is what it says nevertheless i tell you the truth it's your advantage that i go away for if i do not go away the helper will not come to you that's what he says well the bible doesn't leave us guessing John 15:26 but when the helper comes whom i will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. What's he saying? The Trinity is working together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer slaves, but a son. And of a son, an heir through God. You see, the three Persons of the Trinity are always working together. They never work separate from each other. They're always working together. And so the Father is sending the Spirit, but so is the Son in His divinity. And the Spirit's willing to go because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share mutual work. They have one will, one intellect, one desire. Because they have this one will and one common mind, The Spirit's willing to go. And the Son's willing to send. And so is the Father. His humanity relied upon the Spirit, brothers and sisters. His divinity assured the Spirit would come to us. Another benefit. Where the human nature could overcome a single conflict with Satan by the help of the Spirit, the divine could conquer all enemies for all time. Some of you will read Luke chapter 1 as you approach um, Christmas. Luke 1, 67 through 79 is Zechariah's prophecy. I'm just going to read one short part of it. Here's what it said. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now remember, this is is him looking at the baby Jesus. This is what he's saying. He's looking at the baby Jesus and says, God's come and visited and he's, he's redeemed us. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from old, that what? We should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hates us. He saw it clearly. It's God in the cradle before them that came to save them. Every time we see a battle between Satan and humanity, at best, you know what we see? We see humanity eke by that the Spirit somehow carries them and allows them to get through. We don't ever see in humanity the the power inherent to them to overcome and throw down Satan. In fact, you want the best evidence of that? Christ, the fullness of humanity, after he deals with the temptation in the wilderness, do you you know what the Bible says? That the temptation was so taxing on his humanity that... Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Why did they have to minister to him? Because it was exhausting dealing with Satan just once. Just once. And this is the perfect son of God. The, the, The human nature that's perfect. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, is that the evil one has to be put away if we're ever going to be free. Jesus himself came, he says, to destroy the works of the devil. How can Satan cast out Satan, he said? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. What's he saying? The Jews are saying he's casting out Satan by Satan. He's said, like, can't be. That's dumb. That doesn't make any sense. Now listen to what he says. But no one can enter a house and plunder his go- a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder the house the devil is an angel created by god far stronger than you and I or even adam when he was in the garden and yet christ smashed the teeth out of satan Stood on his neck and will one day cast him into the lake of fire. Why? Because the very power of God Himself was with him. Because he is God. Last. Last benefit. Everlasting salvation can only come from the divine nature. There's a principle in the Bible. It's got a funny Latin name, Lex Talianus means an eye for an eye. You're all familiar with it, right? The Old Testament. If someone were to punch someone in the face and knock out a tooth, what was the punishment to be? Someone's going to knock your tooth out, right? Justice required one for one. Genesis 9:6 Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. What's the, if there's a crime, there's a just punishment. And so there's only ever an exchange of like for like in the Bible. To make things right, it can only be one for one, whole for whole. And I've already said this once before, but if there had been a single perfect man, just man, just a single perfect man, that man at best could stand in the place of one other man. One righteous man canceling out one sinful man at best. At best, he could could secure the salvation for one other person at the cost of his very own soul. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, what? An eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you see what's being said here? It's an eternal redemption. Human blood doesn't have eternal value on its own. The divine nature had to be there to expand to allow the human nature's perfect sacrifice to be able to stand in the place of not just himself, not just the place of one other person, but the whole sinful race need be, should they all believe in him. Human blood had to be shed for human life, but it had to be infinitely valuable blood. It must be fully human to, to satisfy the demands of the law, but also infinitely efficacious, able to be applied to all men everywhere. The divine nature had to work in the person of Christ, his own great worth, so that by his human nature dying, he could purchase for all of us. Brothers and sisters, I hope you've seen even what Nick read this morning this wasn't a begrudging act of God but instead Christ fully freely in his divinity went to appear in the presence of God on our behalf to offer himself once once for all to put all sin away. He he did this because, brothers and sisters, he loved us as God. Sometimes we take this look of on God and say, "Yes, Jesus loved us." Yeah. He died for us. He gave himself up for us. But man, God is so angry. Brothers and sisters, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work this out before all time and space. So that both man and God would be together in the person of Christ Jesus. That he would be very near to us as God and man. Brothers and sisters, doubt no longer that your God loves you as you look to Christ. And you see, that's what we need to see and take away from this morning. We need to see that it's not just the humanity of Christ, not just a brother in the flesh like us in every way without sin. It was not just the human part of Christ who wanted our good. The humanity of Christ made him a right and suitable sacrifice, a a redeemer, a mediator. It allowed his person to take on those roles. But it was his divinity that gave strength and scope and power to apply to any and to all who would come on his name. What a mystery. What a blessing. This should cause us to want the desire to 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 worship this one who is beyond our comprehension in his goodness and his power and his wisdom and not just because he's not just because he's man but because he's God too. We should look at the face of Christ and see the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit for us. Our God is for us in the divinity of Christ. And if he freely gave us the most precious person of the Lord Jesus Christ to die on our behalf, is there anything, brothers and sisters, good that he will withhold from us? As we come to the table this morning, let us remember who was offered up for us, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can come to this table because both natures in one person worked and are working and will continue to work for us forevermore. Yes, the humanity is what was slaughtered but the divinity was there making sure that you and I could come to this table and receive grace upon grace. Let God's people say, Amen.